0: Take your Bibles, turn to Second Kings 6, or here in the room, if you turn to page 295, as we continue our study in the book of Second Kings. I remember in seminary, one of the professors, as he was training a lot of future pastors, said, just remember there is a heartache in every pew. We don't have pews, but we do come in with kind of a stack of concerns. Some more serious. Some are a a nagging issue that worries and concerns us. As we read the news in the last week or two about the Ukrainian crisis, we could almost feel guilty about the things that concern us compared to that. And if that helps us somehow get a better perspective or to be more grateful, that's great. But what we're studying about today in 2 Kings 6 is that the same God who is overseeing and managing international crises is also concerned and cares about what is bothering you today. It's an it's a amazing characteristic of our infinite God that he has the big picture, but he also understands all the fine print of what's going on in our lives. In Second Kings 6 today, it's about 830 BC, and there was an international conflict brewing then as well. In fact, next week and the following week, we'll be studying about this conflict conflict between Israel and Aram. It's, it's, a, it's a war that's, that's, that's brewing. But, but this week, we look at these verses that describe God's concern for one man who's never named who loses his axe because he borrowed it. God is concerned about that one man. So while God is managing pandemics and wars, we need to understand that he also cares about our, maybe our finances, how to pay for those new tires. What is that undiagnosed symptom we're, we're thinking about? What about that hurt in a relationship, and how do we resolve this and that? He cares about all those things. He cares about the personal stuff of those who love him. Let's read the entire passage, verses 1 through 7. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you, or could say live with you, is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place there for us to live. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha said. And he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, referring to Elisha, he cried out, it was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. That's the whole passage. He lost the axe head. God made it float. Amen, you're dismissed. Kidding. God cared. God cared, first of all, about this group of prophets who needed a larger facility. In the scope of eternity, it could seem like that's not really a very big deal to make the pages of the Bible. But I'll just say, as a church leader, it's reassuring to me that God cares about the facilities that are needed. Because ministry, spiritual ministry, is about people. And people need places to meet. Aren't, aren't they glad we have a place that we're out of that rain and wind from last night? We, we need places to meet. Why were they needing a bigger place Uh, The the term that's used in the Hebrew language in in verse 1 can mean live or meet, which probably meant both. Because back in chapter 4, we saw that the prophets did get together with the, 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 the sons of the prophets or the company of prophets were getting together and meeting with Elisha Elisha was like the older mentor, professor kind of a person. And it seems that they, these prophets both lived there and met with Elisha there. Why? For, for spiritual training and encouragement. Well, why, why would you have this cluster of, of prophets? We need to understand a little bit of what was going on in Israel at the time. So let's review a little bit of the history and, and geography of about 800 to 850 B.C. So, in the time of Solomon, uh, more about the 900 and some BC, the kingdom of Israel had divided, split, civil war, northern and southern. So, the northern portion was called Israel. Technically, it was 10 of the 12 tribes, and the southern part was called Judah, the primary of those two tribes. And so now the capital was still in Jerusalem for the south, but Samaria had become the capital for the northern kingdom. But there was a lot of spiritual chaos going on in the northern kingdom. As we study through the books of kings, we see that uh, every one of the 19 kings of the north were ungodly men. Though they, they had the scriptures accessible to them, they all were bad. Now, Does that mean that all the people who lived there under their rule were ungodly people? Not at all. There will have been many godly people, just as you can go to any oppressed uh, regime around the world and find that there are churches and Christians who are seeking to function there. But they weren't really encouraged to go, especially down to Jerusalem, for uh, worship. And so God was enabling them to be spiritually encouraged and led by prophets. Um, he did not abandon them. And so we actually find in Scripture, in the passages we've been reading, uh, several mentions of what I would almost call a school of the prophets. The company which was at Bethel, the people, the prophets at Jericho we've met, and then we learned that there were 50 of them, uh, probably from Jericho who uh, witnessed Elijah and Elisha leaving, and then Elijah goes to heaven, Elisha comes back alone. We find also prophets at Gilgal, and at that point there was a hundred mentioned there. So that's quite a few prophets that were serving the Lord in that area, and maybe it was even a growing situation. So we know that God uses buildings for people for ministry purposes. When you think of the godly people in northern, in northern Israel at the time, you just picture they, they knew that they were supposed to be worshiping on the Sabbath. So they probably clustered together and some of these prophets, I'm imagining, went to be with them. Uh, feast days, three major times a, a, a year, there was these major feasts. What were they supposed to do in their worship? Back in chapter 4, we saw this one reference but when, the, when the Shunammite woman was talking with her husband about going to Elijah, Elisha. She, he said to her, why would you go to Elisha now? It's not a Sabbath or a feast day. Which suggests that they often did that kind of a thing. So you, you kind of begin to get a picture of, of how worship was functioning under these ungodly kings. And, and so at this point, they are needing a larger facility. God knows when buildings are needed. So one of my enjoyable tasks is to teach the welcome class and part of the uh, welcome class that I enjoy doing is, is talking about the history of Open Door and how God's always provided for, for buildings that we, we've needed. As some of you know, we started out uh, as a church and meeting in the b- rented basement hall and that's about nine years of the, of the beginning of the church from late 70s to early 80s. And then I got to be about part of about a year and a half of that. But then God provided that we could purchase the first acre here on this location and the first building, which used to be a liquor store. Yeah, we got that down. No, it's, it's that first part where the three uh, pastor's offices, uh, the foyer, nursery, and the main restrooms are. That, that was the building. And so God provided that, and then uh, not terribly long after that, we were beginning to build uh, this uh, worship facility. But during the years of building this, we needed to get a little more room, so we actually rented from the, from the St. Simon's uh, Church across the back and did evening Sunday school. God was providing, one way or another. And then most recently, and a lot more of you have, that are here today are a part of that, uh, we were able to see God provide the Discipleship Center uh, addition. Uh, fundraising kind of started in earnest in 2015, and then two years later, construction started in 17, and we completed it in 2019, and then closed it all down for COVID. <laughs> but uh, no, we've been able to restart ministry to the degree we have, largely because God provided that building, and we could do some Things And just even thinking of the women's conference that was held here this past uh, Friday evening and all day Saturday and, and the way all that worked because God provided a building for us. So I don't know, depending on when you started to be a part of Open Door Bible Church, some of these uh, different provisions are part of probably your own story of faith. But the reality is that God's handprint has been all over the buildings because these have been opportunities to grow our faith the the prophets needed a bigger place i understand the church needs uh, spaces at different times so god began to provide so what did god do to provide verse two and three and four let us go to the jordan where each of us can get a pole so they're going to go chop trees and let us build a place for us to live. And he said, go. And one of them said, will you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha said. And he went with them. End of verse 4, they went down to the Jordan to begin to cut down trees. So we, we, the curious part of me wants to know kind of where that was. So as we go back to the map, we find that these three areas that are mentioned in 2 Kings, Gilgal, Bethel, and uh, Jericho, are all kind of at that southern border And this is where the kind of the hub of the prophets seem to be. So we'll zoom in on that. And we find Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho. My guess is that this building uh, was probably going up at Jericho because that's the closest uh, to actually the Jordan River where they went for the trees, 8 to 10 miles, which is still a pretty good journey when you're lugging some some large timber uh, back and forth. So they're going to build it. But, but notice that it's something that God knew they needed, it's something that God provided, but it didn't like fall from the sky. You know, the, the miracle we're studying here today is not about, boom, they woke up and the building was there. No, they had to go and, and, and work hard to, to get that. So uh, again, I'm just doing a little reminiscing today as I think back to the, the process of just the, the latest project that God provided for us. And um, it, it took board meetings to kind of decide conceptually and size-wise what do we do, and the building committee, uh, thinking through a lot of the, the major elements of that, uh, a lot of kitchen uh, team and the decorating team. Um, and then I know after the major contractors were, were gone, a, lot of, a number of you put in some major hours to, to finish up uh, the building. So, so God uses a lot of people Doing the things that God is actually providing. In addition, it seems like the whole church was involved in the prayer backing of this. And many of you can remember the times that, that we, we took where we would gather as a church. Maybe we've circled this room a few times in prayer and, and had different kinds of smaller meetings focusing on, on praying for God to provide, which led to a lot of personal prayer time as, as people asked the Lord, you know, what do you want me to give? I'm sure as couples, often there were these conversations of, of faith building and, and thinking through, you know, what, what, can, what does God want us to, to do and be involved? So there's just a lot involved of hard work when God is doing his miracle of providing something physical, something tangible. God cared about this prophet ministry that was accomplishing his purposes and so God supplied a building so that's 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 happening but even when you're depending on God even when you're putting in the hard work things can go wrong every building project I've been a part of uh, things have gone wrong and in fact what we're going to learn here today is is something that would not even be in our scripture If things hadn't gone wrong, Um, God uses problems to build our faith. There should be be something in Scripture as we're, we're reading through, especially Old Testament events and so forth, that if we do not experience problems, struggles, trials, we will have a weak faith. But as we face them, God's the one who grows. Our faith. So they're cutting down trees. End of verse four. Verse five. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Whatever they looked like at that day, in that day, you you still have a handle and you still have the axe head. Fell into the water. That's the Jordan River. That's a big river. Deep water. Oh my Lord, meaning Master, he cried out. It was borrowed. He, he he's in a panic. God cared about the project. He also cared about the prophet and the panic he was facing at the time. It might seem like a measly problem. Go to the hardware store and get another one, right? The Iron Age uh, was in the ancient Near East, not that many centuries before this. Just the concept of iron and uh, iron ore was uh, found, but this was pretty much a new and uh, costly technology to produce even a small amount of iron. First, you had to find the iron ore, mine it, transport it to some place where you have built uh, iron kilns. I Understand it took massive amounts of of, uh, firewood to heat these. And then you had to have the people, the skills, the know how to turn iron ore into iron and then have it processed to be shaped or sharpened into a tool. Uh, the scarcity of iron is, is indicated in our scripture back in 1 Samuel 13, where uh, there was a, an impending war between the Philistines and the Israelites. And it makes this little note that says, the, Isra- the Israelites were getting their their tools, their iron tools, from the Philistines. That's that's how they would get iron. And now they're at war with the Philistines, and so swords were terribly scarce. Add to that that the economy was not good. In 2 Kings 4, a few weeks ago, we were looking at how uh, the, the school of the prophets was excited just to have a big bowl of vegetable stew. And then remember... It uh, had some poisonous weed in it or something, and and, uh, God healed the stew. That was a remarkable miracle. Another time, somebody had brought uh, a few loaves and some grain to help feed the prophets at the school of the prophets, but but they said, this doesn't feed a hundred men, which tells you there were a hundred men there. And then God performed this miracle where the small amount of bread was multiplied and it was enough. To feed all those men plus left over, kind of a preview of what God, what Christ would do twice: feeding the four thousand, feeding the five thousand. And so things were not good financially. This axe was a big deal. Professor, somebody, professor, Ray Dillard points out that given the rarity and the costly nature of iron, and having so little discretionary income, the common man is that, that the common man in Israel would have had to lose an axe was probably more like if you borrowed someone's car and wrecked it and they had no insurance, it, w- it was perhaps a, a virtually impossible task to think of somehow replacing this ax. And if, if not impossible, how many months of income would it take before this could be repaid? So does God care about this godly man's financial crisis? Does God care about your financial concern. And if you don't have one right now, you, I pretty much bet you've had times where you did have them. I mean, seriously, with, with, with God trying to handle the pandemic and the Ukrainian thing, does he really care about making rent or mortgage or repairs or medical bills? There's two theological terms that we sometimes talk about that I think help us understand God. Because remember, we have the Bible because we're trying to understand God. And he says, I want you to know me. And now, we can't fully know an infinite God, but we can know much about him uh, because he has revealed everything we need to know. So it's two things that we've learned are that God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent refers to his control over all things. He has the power and the authority and the ability to manage the entire big picture of the globe and the universe that he created always. That's transcendence. God is also imminent. That because he has infinite knowledge, omniscience, infinite knowledge, he can also perfectly understand every detail in your life. He can care about the big picture and the fine print fully because he is an infinite God. We think we are finite. We have limits. The God who created this magnificent universe is infinite. In a small way, it's like parents try to pull off parenting with the big picture and the the details, right? Right? Parents have a big job. They, they are managing the financial picture of the family. So you got to have a job, and you face all kinds of challenges and headaches at work to, to, to pay bills for the food and the housing and the transportation. That's a big-picture thing. The health needs, you care about the health and safety, you do everything you can to try to protect your, your family and keep them as healthy and safe as possible you have the schedule to run and it gets pretty crazy sometimes you have multiple kids and this and that and so you're, you got the whole f- scheduling issue and you have relationships wow what a task that is husband and wife and parent child and, and all the hurts and learning to apologize and forgive and nourish this relationship and a lot of big things go along but it's amazing how You have a young child and they skin their knee or they lose a toy and you with all your big picture issues are all over that lost toy. you're, You're moving sofas and digging through closets and going through bins looking for a single toy because it matters to that precious child of yours. So if we as finite parents with with all kinds of issues, imperfections, care about a child's lost toy? How much more does the infinite God, who loved us so much he sent Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sins, how much more does he not care because he has that full capacity to understand everything? How much more would he not care about the issue that you came in today troubling you? That is our God. Oh, Lord, it was borrowed. He's in a a human panic. We all get it. And at that moment, the eternal God, the God who is already foreseeing what we'll read in the rest of chapter 6 and 7, this international crisis in Israel, his country is being attacked by by the king of Aram, and the God who was handling the crises of war also saw the axe head fly off and go into that water and down the murky waters, into the silt below somewhere, how many yards down. Because there was a godly, probably younger prophet who knew that he had to repay and give this axe back. In that invisible moment, the God who created galaxies in our solar system. The God who made the mountains where the iron ore came from to make the axe. Decided to do something about it. And spoke to his prophet Elisha. And says, cut a stick. We're going to get that axe back. And I'm guessing that God in his great wisdom. Knew when he put this little event in our scriptures that all around the world in the next many centuries including today there would be someone in this room who really really needs to know that God still cares because we have all kinds of stuff we have things that, that, that worry us that we're ashamed to tell anybody it seems so silly we have things that worry us that cause us deep shame we have things that are about the future that bother us for whatever reason. Does God still care? Yes, because that's who God is. He is infinite in his capacity, but he's also infinite in his love for us personally. So whatever else God was doing that day, he added this to his inexhaustible list Float that axe. The man of God, verse 6, said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. And the man reached out his hand and took it. Who designed gravity? God. God and the exact ratio that would take place on the earth, in the solar system, in all the universe. He knew all about gravity because he designed it this way, so if God decides to reverse it one moment, one day, he can certainly do that. This is the the providence of God. That is, that that God has the the plans, the knowingness, the the control of all things at all times. Times. He knew that the axe head would separate at that time. He knew that Elisha needed to come along on that particular logging expedition. And he knew that he'd put it in the scripture so we would have it for us today. We either believe that God controls everything or he really controls nothing. Those are the choices. Now, as we think about that vastness of God, I mean, don't be ridiculous to think that it matters to God what shirt you put on today, because in almost every case, it doesn't. Um, But if there's a detail in your life that could help you to grow in your faith in God, grow in your godliness, your adherence to His Word, to your something that would help you to be uh, more pure, more caring to someone else, Some, something that would enable you to be more patient. If, if there's something in detail in your life that could develop, God is all over that because those are big deals that we would live a life that would please and glorify Him. I don't know if I've ever uh, told this story Publicly before, but I think I remember my first answered prayer. Uh, I'm guessing I was eight or nine, and uh, I had come to put my faith in Christ at age six in a conversation in a hospital waiting room with my grandfather. I've told that story before, but so I'm eight or nine, and I'm I'm in the farm in Kansas down in the basement. We called it the cellar with mom. That's where we had our washer and dryer. And for whatever reason. Um, the mom put the clothes in the dryer and closed the door and it was supposed to go on and it didn't go on. She tried several times and she couldn't get the, the dryer to go. Now what's wrong? And I don't know why, but in my young faith, I decided to pray that the dryer would start. Probably because I grew up hearing my parents pray about details. Like we need more rain for the farming and all that. And so I silently prayed, and asked God to start the dryer. She closed it one more time, and it started. I told my mom, and my mom celebrated with me that God had answered my prayer. It was not my great faith that started that dryer, but God started the dryer, I'm firmly convinced, because he wanted to grow my tiny, young faith. And that's a big deal to God. Because if it was my great faith, I would not have had all the appliance problems I've had since then. (laughs) Right now, our ice dispenser doesn't work. It makes ice, but it doesn't dispense or crush ice. We are suffering at our house. (laughs) I've taken it apart, and I can't get it fixed. So I'm going to have to call somebody and pay them to fix it. But you know what? No, I'm serious. I I don't feel the freedom to pray that God would heal my ice dispenser. Because more likely, I would imagine that I'm supposed to have a conversation with some repairman, or there's some repairman that simply needs the income. When we try to think about why there aren't more axe head and drier miracles, let's be careful we do not trivialize God to reduce him to some kind of uh, magical genie in the bottle in charge of the tiny little fix-it miracles that we need. That's, that's not the point of this at all, because then we're, we're falling prey to what the prosperity preachers are talking about, as if God really is that genie in the bottle, and we, we are managing and manipulating him for our purposes. No, no, no. He is always in charge for his purposes. I would imagine that most of the time that we can pray about these kind of details but I would say that most of the time God is doing things like developing in us patience when cars don't start. And you have to call the tow truck and call your boss, you can be late to work what it might be, patience. He might, be, he might develop in us contentment because the money we had targeted for this thing we would enjoy now has to go for something essential that we don't really enjoy and so we, we learn contentment he might even be, be seeking to develop in us a, a um, an ability to hear ourselves when we say certain words at dryers that don't work. You know, God is probably doing something in our character that is far more important than the than the thing we want God to do to fix a situation. I just think, you know, what what is God doing in Ukraine? It's been on my mind a lot, and prayers and yours probably too. Um, I pray for a a, a national outcome of freedom for these people. I I pray for the believers there, specifically. And, um, you know, I've I've read, I don't know how substantiated they are, of some reports of some miraculous things that God has done to protect people, but I've also read about the tragedy that has struck as, as, as families have been destroyed and killed. I read about a pastor whose church building was destroyed. Some of you might have seen the video of this, this family singing praises to God in the midst of their fears. You know, how does, how does God decide when he will suspend nature to do something very specific because of his personal care for us and, and when he will allow that tragedy to happen, perpetrated not by God, but by evil people. We don't know except that we know that God always has a good plan for those who love him and that he will be doing that which develops those traits of gratitude and that which somehow glorify him and that which somehow gets even the message of the cross to the greatest number of people. So, at the bottom of your outline today, I've included kind of a basic study of um, what it means that God cares for us personally. Uh, basically, the two issues are that God knows everything, and then yet God cares personally. He knows it all, yet He cares personally. i like us just to go through those scriptures. You have the outline there. You don't really need to write anything, but we're just going to read through these various scriptures on on the screen because there is is power in the divinely inspired Word of God. This book is like no other. I hope we understand that by now. This book is revealing God Himself to us and it is truth and everything else must be measured by this standard. So let's, let's just let the Word of God speak to us. First of all, some passages about how He knows. He knows all we do, all we think, Always oh, say, Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, David, the king of Israel, about a thousand BC is writing, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me, you know, when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down, you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, O Lord, know it completely when I'm still here. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. I like verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So if you're struggling to comprehend how God can know all of this and still know all these individuals, David wondered too. Aren't you you glad that our God is infinite? Many people try to define God in terms that they can understand. We make a mistake to think that I've I've got to comprehend. I can know it, but it doesn't mean I can comprehend how that all works because we are we a are finite being trying to understand an infinite being. But he perceives our thoughts, so he knows everything we think. Scary, huh? Yes, that's a very reassuring truth because God in his grace still loves us in spite of the most horrible things we've ever thought. Isn't that amazing? And he knows when we have had the best intentions that somebody misunderstood and maybe was blaming or, or, or accusing us of something that's not true. And we we meant well, he, he knows, he knows it all. He knows our going out, he he he, he was aware. He as you got in your cars and drove here today, it's like you all got here safely. He he's aware of everything, all of our going out, driving texting while driving (laughs) he knows our lying down he knows your sleep issues how long you lay there before you fall asleep he knows if you have to get up three times because the baby's crying and so you're low on sleep and crabby and he knows it and before a word is on my tongue you know it completely he not only knows what we said he knows it before we said it he knows what we're about to say that's a good time to catch on remember that he hems us in behind him before he, he's everywhere, omnipresent as well as omniscient, knows everything. He is everywhere. He sees all that people do. Proverbs fifteen three. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Nothing evil is happening unnoticed by a holy God. The evil perpetrators of war corrupt politicians perverse producers of entertainment leaders of criminal addictive industries are in full view of God and he will be just that's the conclusion is he will be just He also sees the good. He sees every good, sincere, godly heart. He knows when you serve and give and give and serve. And and it's unnoticed and maybe unappreciated or even misunderstood. But he he sees. and, And just as he is just, he is also a rewarder. He's a rewarder. And so this verse assures us of God's full view of all in the globe, both good and evil and the author to hebrews in the new testament says something similar but then he boils it down to address christians in particular nothing in all creation is hidden from god's sight everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him now he zeroes in to whom we must give account so it's good it's a warning right that uh, we're always accountable for our character. We're accountable for our attitudes, our thoughts, our bitterness, our hatred, fully exposed. We're never incognito, never. These verses teach that God is omniscient, omnipresent. Adam and Eve learned it in the, after, the, after the first sin in the universe, right? Adam and Eve sinned, it says, and they hid from God. Of course, you couldn't. So God asked them what they did and so forth, but they found that they were accountable. They could not hide from God. But there's another way to look at this accountability. It's a very, very positive thing. We should embrace our accountability to God. 1 John 1, to 7-9. I don't have that one here, but it says, walk in the light. Walk in the light, knowing that he sees don't, don't pretend you're in the darkness. Walk in the light as he is in the light. That's his holy view of everything. Walk in the light as he is in the light. And, and when, you, when you do that, you begin to notice your sin. It says, but as you sin, realize that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So he sees everything and yet loves us. But if we intentionally walk embracing the fact that he sees and he's present, he's present. It doesn't keep us sinless, but it keeps us aware of sin so that we deal with it. And so, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, admit it to him, he's faithful and just and forgives us. This is for believers. This is for those who have put their faith in Christ. And he'll cleanse you continually. And so you have that renewal of fellowship. We have fellowship with one another, God and us so he sees all things he controls all that people do job 12 in his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind how long you live is in god's hand somehow our wisdom is a part of that so we eat we need to eat healthier exercise more have self control But God knows our lifespan and has determined it. All your days, Psalm 139, all your days were written in God's book before there was one of them. So, in his hand, he knows how long every creature, let alone his human beings, made in his image, will live. In in Acts 17, Paul in the New Testament was talking to the uh, philosophical and yet religious people of Athens, and he uh, says, let me tell you about God. He said, I, I went around and I saw in your city all these different altars to the different gods and somebody had erected an altar to the unknown God, kind of covering all the bases. And so Paul used that and said, let me t- talk to you about the unknown God. He says, this is, the God of the Bible is the unknown God. Here, here's how he put it. From one man, he made all the nations. That's Genesis 1 through 11 right there. From Adam and Eve, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God has determined exactly where people would live and the ever-changing boundaries. Map makers have to move stuff around after this war and that war throughout history. None of that was outside of God's control. But So so if he's determined this, what has been his purpose? This is important. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. So God's greater purpose is to call to himself people who will be part of his family forever. Life on this earth is this long. Life in eternity is endless. And so all the different struggles, wars, death, tragedies, all happened in this little sliver of time so that God could call people to understand that He sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world so that they would put their faith in Him and have this eternal life and eternal relationship and not be judged forever for their sin, but receive his free grace and so God is manipulating. so as we pray for different nations and you know Ukraine's on the radar because of the news but stuff like this is happening all over the world in so many places where there's persecution and and tribal fighting and death everywhere and what is God doing? He is developing people to come to know him because that is the first and major issue man can be guilty of this evil encroachment and there are Responsible and accountable for that, but the, the truth is that God is doing good things even through suffering, eternal things. So God knows everything, and then God cares about whatever is creating anxiety in us. So we should pray about everything. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two. This is again um, David, the, the king. He wrote most of our psalms. Cast your Burdens or cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be be shaken. This term care or burden is, is literally a weight, and, and and you know what that is when when you got something on your mind. It's it's not a backpack, but it's heavier than a backpack. It's just it's something that's just dragging you down, and maybe it has for years. Well, I think we actually have an idea what maybe David was referring to, because earlier in Psalm fifty five, he talks about a friend that he had that had. Once been his closest friend, they had worshiped together, and this friend betrayed him. Nothing so heavy as a friend who betrays you. In 2 Samuel, we see the name of a a man, Ahithophel. I think that's who David's talking about that betrayed him. Ahithophel had been one of the closest companions of David a close friend, his chief counselor, a really smart man who helped David as king. And and then, of all things, when Absalom, David's son, rebelled against, against David, Ahithophel went over to Absalom's side. And in my mind, I think it best fits what burden David's talking about that he's carrying, that this man would betray him. Not only was his son fighting against him and chased him out of the capital city of Jerusalem, but His friend betrayed him. Peter, in the New Testament, writes something so similar, it makes us wonder if perhaps he is like restating Psalm 55. So cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Whatever it is concerns you, you got the lost toy, (laughs) your heavenly father cares. So pray about it. If it concerns you and God's in charge of it, pray about it. You can actually talk to him about it. Don't. If he frees you from praying about it, that's great. I'm not praying for my ice dispenser. But if it's a concern to you, pray. One of those anxieties, typical throughout the centuries, is worrying about money. Matthew 6 is part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was talking to a large group of, of people there in Israel. Um, and, and as he looked about on that crowd, he, he saw that so many people were concerned about feeding their families. Uh, we're, we're in an economy that whatever we complain about, gas prices or whatever, uh, most of us are not concerned if we'll eat today. We're deciding what we'll eat we might, we might you know, buy a little less because something else costs more but, but many people have been concerned about if they will eat so Jesus said to them therefore I tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body what you shall wear anybody have any trouble finding something to wear today? no, we're we picking from this closet of you know, stuff look at the birds of the air they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them birds are taken care of. So, are you not more valuable than they? Much more valuable? So do not worry. For the pagans, meaning unbelievers, even if they don't acknowledge God, they care about all, they run after all these things. They're, They're obsessed with those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you, believer in Jesus Christ, need them. So, prioritize. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Are you a kingdom seeker? Then you don't need to be a financial worrier. One more worry that was typical of that day for those who followed Christ was the fear of persecution. We don't know the stories of all 12 disciples, but many, most, virtually all of the disciples died martyrs. Uh, we We don't have all the stories, so some are kind of conjecture, but... He said, you should expect that. He told the 12 disciples, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. And Christians around the globe are often treated that way because we believe the word of God. We believe what it said. It puts us in opposition to some of the culture uh, wars and culture understandings. So yeah, there's some hate. But he says, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You're an eternal being. Are not, he uses the bird illustration again, are not two sparrows <clears throat> sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Did you know that? And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You can contemplate that. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God cares about your details. What are you worried about? God's not too busy with the world to care about what bothers you. That's the good news. Whether it's financial or relational, fear of persecution, crime, whatever it is, God knows everything. He knows you, and He cares about what's on your mind as you came here today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your infinite nature in all aspects. You are infinitely wise, infinitely uh, powerful. You are infinitely just towards sin, and yet you have been infinitely loving towards us as sinners, so much that you sent Jesus to pay the price, the penalty of our sin we thank you for that we thank you that you care personally for us we pray right now as a as a corporate group for the church around the world thinking especially maybe of churches gathering in fear or fearing to gather in Ukraine today Lord you know each um, issue on their heart and mind you care about the, them individually please Minister to them with a unique peace that goes beyond understanding. And we pray for your good and gracious will to be done both for now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.